This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to episode 197 of What Most People Think. It's all going on this week. It is all going on. We've got local elections. We've got coronations. Well, we haven't got coronations. We've got one big coronation. And uh, it only occurred to me this week, literally this week, that the reason Coronation Street was called Coronation Street was because it was probably named during a coronation. And I think it's a good point to bring in Ian Dale, who <laughs> is looking stunned at my uh, my naivety on that point. Well, you're just playing wrong, aren't you? Because Coronation Street, I think, started in, nine, was it 1962 or 1963? So 10 years after the coronation. So what yeah, but like, but there'd be, they haven't had any other sense. It must be named, it can't be named after the chi- chicken or the... Yeah, I don't think we had Coronation Chicken then, did we? It was a good year, 1962. Well, that was the year I was born. There you go. Maybe it was the coronation <laughs> of, of Ian Dale. My queen, and and or, forever or, my queen. Or perhaps not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's great to have you back on the, on the show, mate. I, I, I know that you're uh, a, a bit ill at the moment. I know loads of people have had that this year, this, earlier this year. Um, but have you? What's been going on recently? Have you had any? I love your show, Cross Question, on on LBC. I, I love it when you tell people off. Have you had to tell anybody <laughs> off recently? Um, yeah, I have actually. A Tory MP, um, Tobias Elwood who mm. is chairman of the Defence Select Committee. And it was all about... Ella Whelan had the misfortune to mention Brexit. No, mm. I think there was a question. Somebody said, well, what are the benefits? Can you name one benefit of Brexit? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that really original question. Mm. Um, so she starts giving an answer, and after about five seconds, he interrupts her. Mm. He says, well, go on, give one benefit then. So she starts to talk again. Well, go on, I'm waiting. So I had to so I, I'd sort of basically mm. push my hand in his face. Um, and he kept doing it. He kept, kept doing it again and again and again. So I got a bit ratty with him after that. Um, Naughty. I don't, and I don't normally sort of do get a bit ratty. I did have one other um, occasion last week. We did um, hour-long phone-ins each day with one of the representative from each of the main parties doing a phone-in about the local elections. Yeah. And um, Greg Hans, a Conservative Party chairman, came on on the Monday, and he'd never done a phone-in before. So I took him through what you need to do, sort of make sure you mm. write down the name of the caller and address them directly and don't just sort of look at me all the time. And he didn't quite get it. And there was one bit where he was, I can't remember what the caller had asked, and he was going about Rishi's five pledges, yeah. which are about as wishy-washy as you can get. So he started, so well, um, halving inflation. Sorry, did we just coin a phrase there, wishy-washy? um he 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 said to harvey inflation by the end of the year i said well that's not going very well is it he said stop the boats i said well that's not going very well is it so he went through the Mm. whole five i can't remember what the other three are now and he went through all five and i kept saying well that's not going very well and by the end of it it was as if i'd knocked him out on the canvas he just (laughs) was completely (laughs) deflated and uh you've just got to show a bit of humor now okay with the record that they've got at the moment that's quite difficult i suppose 
but um, Rachel Reeves was on the next day. She's she's really got the hang of it now, and I mean she's not a natural um, media performer in some ways, but she has got privately she's very very funny, and she's starting to bring that into her whole sort of interview act. Um, yeah, and she she was. Actually I certainly thought at the the budget response. I know that it's standard for leader of the opposition to respond, but you did look. Keir Starmer's recent, well, recent couple of months ago budget response was incredibly insipid. I thought it was one of his worst performances, and you did look behind him and you saw Rachel Reeves and Angela Rayner, and I, I just wonder what must be going through their minds at times like this. People that must know within their heart of hearts that they could do a much better job at the dispatch box. Well, there's about. 250 people who probably think that and it's the same on the Tory benches yeah. you always think you can do better than the person actually doing it and um, they probably can at this point Ian well, though can't they most of uh, them yeah up to up to a point if you want knockabout okay Angela Rayner is going to knock Keir Starmer mm. out of the park um, I'm, I'm trying to remember his budget response, which I suppose indicates that it was a bit shit. If I can't remember yeah. it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and no, but- I mean, I mean, Rishi. I do think the weird thing with Rishi on camera, we've seen recently these weird videos that he's doing, where a lot of people are quite finally commented that it looks like he's doing those cameo video messages for yeah. his local constituents. Those do, are worth checking do you do out. That? I, I've, got, I, I've got, I've got a cameo account. I don't. I, I've always thought that if I did it, I'd just put it on at some ridiculous thing like a grand a time. And if anyone's stupid <laughs> enough to do it, I would literally I'll, whatever they want. If they want to see, they can see whatever they want to see for a grand. I'll do it. <laughs> it's not. It's not that kind of site, Jeff. By the way. Uh, so. All right. I'll, I'll just go. I'll keep. I'll just stick with the OnlyFans account. Yeah, actually, Rishi. Rishi at at the dispatch box is a bit more agile than Starmer and I think that that is that is dismal for Keir isn't it like Rishi Starmer comes across with a slightly more humanity if they could both transpose like you know Starmer's probably better on camera and worse at the dispatch box and Rishi vice versa if they could both even out their qualities it would help yeah I mean Rishi is an interesting one because he's not a natural media performer either in a way just as Starmer isn't and I think um Oh, Starmer's voice doesn't help him, does it? You do quite a good Starmer impression, but um, well, you be, I'll just do it, and you'll say you'll ask for Matt Ford. So I'm, I'm not walking straight onto that uppercut. <laughs> well, you, well, you know what he always says to get into Starmer. Yeah, he just, in his head, he has to say Metropolitan Police, the and that gets him into the voice. Police, yeah, that certainly doesn't emphasize. <laughs> look, 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 look. No, no, no I'm, I'm, look, I'm not going to get drawn in. To very uh, often the debates that he's not going to get drawn into are really simple things that most people have a strong view. Look, I'm not just marmite. I'm not going to give you a view on marmite. You go every. It's love it or hate it. Kit, come on. But don't, don't you think though, when, when Rishi is, is at PMQs or when he does these, um, what Cameron used to do, these Cameron direct things, like he's he's got a little town hall audience and he sort of rolls mm. up his shirt sleeves, takes his jacket off. And it's as if someone's injected him with a performance-enhancing drug because he suddenly mm. becomes incredibly animated. His his arms are like Magnus Pike for the older, <laughs> for, for the younger people among you. Magnus Pike was a TV star, a sort of scientist, and used to wave his hands. A bit mm. like Andrew Marr when he became political editor of the BBC, waved his hands all over the place. And I remember when he did that, he said to me, how do you think I'm doing? Because um, they're all a bit needy. Mm, and... Yes. Um, I said, if if anyone at the BBC ever tells you to stop waving your hands around, tell them to fuck off. Because it, mm. it actually helps you emphasise the point that you're trying to make. And But because nobody had done that before, I think all the BBC managers found it a bit weird and they, they wanted him to stop, but, um, but, but he didn't. And Rishi's a bit like that, but it doesn't seem natural with Rishi. He gets overhyped up 
and, and it just is a bit over the top and it doesn't seem as if he's being himself. Uh, we got new patrons to welcome this week. We've got uh, three new patrons, as you, as you know, and we always comment, uh, we speculate on who they are based on their names. We've got Al, Al Shep. Al Shep. He's a country and western singer from Tennessee. Yeah, it's good old boy, Al Shep. One of those country and western stars that you latterly found out has moved and lived in New York for the last 20 years. But he just, <laughs> he's just doing it to keep the people. Al Shep, his, his most recent album is called Good Old Boy. He just got the most on-the-nose fucking album title. And he's married to his sister. <laughs> Uh, we got Graham Wright. I think Graham is a returning patron, so uh, thank you for your perseverance. Anybody where Patreon has dumped you out and you've come back. And then we've got Nicholas Doy. Nicholas Doy. That just sounds Doy. How could that not be? Spell that. D O Y E. Nicholas Doy. I think probably quite an arty writer, don't you? Oh yeah, Nicholas Doy. Yeah, it'd have one of those enigmatic titles like the the smell of bricks or one of those. You know when they <laughs> they just combine like a sensory thing with something you wouldn't, ex- wouldn't expect. <laughs> yeah, the the, the smell are, of bricks. Are, are, or, are you a brick sniffer, Jeff? Is that what you're you're trying to come out as now? I'm not a brick sniffer, but immediately it does sound like a, an insult that was around in the fifties. <laughs> it, it really does. You'd be a bloody. Brick, sif- Brick sniffer Norcott was there, or, or a nickname for some 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 uh, some violent member of the Leeds United team of the seventies. Um, the main talking point uh, we had we had Diona Doherty on last week. Yes, uh, I listened. Diona's uh, Dio, just great to talk to, and and I know I, I, I mentioned it in the podcast, but great to listen to that accent, yeah. just just incredible accent. And uh, David said it was a great fun chat. It was, it really was a fun chat. We did speak about some issues in the in Northern Ireland and and some serious stuff, but it was all done in a fun way. So do go back and listen to that. Um, I mentioned getting married relatively young. So David, as you know, is our super patron who looked into the stats, and he said the UK Parliament website states that the average age of first marriage is now 31 compared with a 20th century low of 23. I mean, so that's gone up by roughly a third within the space of 30 years. That's quite, I mean, that's the average age as well. Are you, are you, are you a married married man? That doesn't ring true, does it really? 31? I mean, how many? I don't know in the social circus I moved in because I got married at like 27 and I was one of the first to go. To go. to go i mean i made that, <laughs> i made that sound like to is, die is, is I mean, mrs norcott there i'd like to have a word i mean whatever impression i get i, I married well i'm punching all, all that stuff I, I i do get worried when it feels like she's she's uh she's she's a formidable woman and i would never let it work i always feel like she can hear me when i'm being cheeky you know you see when you say formidable that it conjures up an image of hyacinth bouquet that's true True. She's not that. She's definitely. She's definitely not uh, higher since bouquet. But um, she's certainly. Uh, she's certainly. I'm doing. I'm doing well for myself, and I just never want to say or think anything that might rock that particular boat. But you, are you a married man yourself? I am. And uh, and I... when did what age did you? Well, I mean, obviously, you, there was a point where you couldn't get married before because it had because it had to become fucking legal, didn't it? This is true. Um, I how old was I? Um, Forty five. 45 yeah i mean i suppose it depends i bet you any money there's a class divide in this as well and i'm not going to do that joke about you know people in middlesbrough by the age of 21 you know on their second marriage four kids probably grandparents oh it's an old joke but i've got to do it it's union rules in you understand <laughs> why'd you, Hori... you pick on middlesbrough 
You're right. Stockton on tees. Is that one of the few towns in Britain that you're not playing at over the next few months? Well, interesting you say that. Uh, the tour does go to both Middlesbrough and Stockton, I think, in, in the not new year. Not anymore, it doesn't. <laughs> not anymore, it doesn't. I think it's. Um, I think they're very close together. So um, I'm not sure if I have enough audience up there. So kind of, if you are in Middlesbrough or Stockton, have a little chat between yourselves and just divide it out to make sure they're what, both Wasn't equally... it Stockton on Tees where Margaret Thatcher did that famous walk on the wasteland? Do you remember that? Where she sort of was on some visit. I think it was like mm. to re- redevelop the port or something. And she went, I don't know how they allowed her to do this because it was just a ridiculous photo opportunity. And there's like nothing there. And she was just pictured walking in this industrial wasteland. And I thought, what idiot allowed that to happen? What year was that? Was that? That would have been sort of mid 1980s, I think. Okay, so yeah, the idea that Thatcher decimated the North had already taken root. Oh my God. You know, we're like in this country. See, this is the thing. People often say about that Ed Miliband photo with the bacon sandwich, right? And and my, a lot of people said, well, Ed Miliband didn't win the 2015 election because he ate a sandwich, weirdly. And my argument is always that those photos, those, um, those uh, iconic photos work because they're actually speaking to something else. It's not that he ate a sandwich, weirdly. And it's also not that Margaret Thatcher happened to walk past a thing that didn't have anything there. It's about the analogous value of it. A little-known fact about Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich, it was was that it was made by the father of one of my former LBC presenter colleagues, who um, Christo stitch Fifas, up. right wing stitch up. Well, no, I think he was a bit of a lefty actually. Mm. Um, Christo, who used to do the overnight show, I think he's now on um, talk radio or talk TV or whatever they call it. And um, yeah, he he was the one that actually gave him the bacon sandwich. There you are. I knew you'd be interested. Kiss in of that. kiss of the no. I love that. I love that. Could the 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 culpability was it deliberately? Maybe it was like deliberately s- sloppy. That would have uh, that and that. So you could then do you know like the butterfly effect. You could say that the reason we're not in the EU is because of how that sandwich was made. Because if are, if that sandwich was we're not in the EU, but I'm not sure that's one of them. No, I think if that sandwich had just been a little bit less sloppy, a little bit more contained and compressed, then Labour win in 2015. But then, I've obviously, I said this in the book, I think if Labour won in 2015, they've then got to give the SNP another referendum. You can't give the SNP one without giving Britain their first referendum on the EU. So I still think that we leave the EU. I don't see any timeline where we don't leave the EU. Do you remember that election night in 2015 where... Um, I think most people thought Labour were going to win that. Ed Miliband certainly did. And I can Mm. remember I was presenting LBC's election night programme, and we don't get the exit polls in advance of of 10 o'clock. So the first Mm. thing I see is on my TV screen, the graphics from the BBC election show. And I, I was not prepared for it to say Conservative majority. And... Of course, that's when I have to earn my money and sort of immediately give an interpretation mm. of the exit poll. And um, I, I think I strung a few coherent sentences together, but there was part of me sort of inwardly going, yes, but I couldn't mm. obviously say that. Um, <laughs> the, the look on my colleagues... Before, it was before they had cameras in the studio, so you could have done a little dance. Well, no, I think that, no, there were cameras there, but um, Sheila Fogarty was my um, co-presenter. I mean, her, her mouth was literally open wide because she couldn't believe what mm. she was seeing either. It was, a, it was an amazing night. 
It was a weird one, that. It's a forgotten election in many ways, because obviously Brexit happened within a, within a year of that. The Brexit vote happened within a year of that. And and actually, that 2015 was the first election where people started to question echo chambers and that certainty. I mean, I remember I was in a writing room for a topical comedy show. and I mean, to show how deluded people had got, Ed Miliband went to see Russell Brand. Do you remember that yes, bizarre I interview do. where <laughs> Russell Brand sat drinking water? Oh, he deserved water like to lose pie. after that, didn't he? I mean, I mean he really did, but... But honestly, in the world I was in, they were like, this is it, this is the moment, this is going to win it for Labour because Russell Brand has endorsed Ed Miliband. And I remember sort of thinking, I was, if I'm honest, I'd love to be wise after the event and say, oh, I, I wasn't sure, but I wasn't sure it was as much of a, a kind of turning point as they as they thought it was. And, and, and then straight after that, yeah, the shock after the 2015 election has yeah. been largely forgotten. Let's do the thank you and the fuck you. So the thank you, I'll do a thank you, um, is the the work in progress shows that I've been doing. I uh, It's just been great. I've done about four so far. And, and I just want to say I'm aware of how privileged it is to do rooms, you know, good sized rooms, about 150 people in. I just go out of my laptop with a support act and I'm able to kind of piss about a bit i mean it is funny like what i've noticed is that a lot of people that are there just think that they're getting the tour show for a few quid less and then i'll do i'll deliberately do a couple of the newer routines early on just to let them know what it's going to be like <laughs> some of it literally will be me reading a note off my phone but they've been incredible and i went i did one on sunday night uh, in saddleworth which is Ooh. a very Tory bit of Manchester, that. I mean, I, I did not realise. You know when you just misread a place for being the North? I I, I did not. It's, I would call it an enclave would probably be the best way. Isn't that where the Moors murders happened? No, I, I did feel that there was there was weirdness in the room. It's, yeah, do, <laughs> the, do, you, do you have to be really careful and things like that, or do you just go for it? Because I mean, you can't, no, you I mean, can't I didn't, make I jokes didn't... about children being murdered, can you? You can't, that's probably one of the ones that I would say, yeah. I mean, the joke would have to be so incredible. What I think is the darker the subject matter, the better the joke needs to be. There's almost an inverse yeah. relationship. Uh, what I have noticed is people have done in the past what I'd call stepping on a landmine, which probably that is a problematic phrase in itself. But I was um, where people just don't know about something that's happened. So I was at a university gig. This was like in the mid-noughties. And there was a comic on. He was absolutely storming it. I mean, properly, like people crying, laughing. And it, and it's, uh, it's in Warrington. And then he said, I tell you what, Warrington's a shithole, isn't it? This seems like a place that could do with a good bombing. No. And, like, and then I thought, oh, has he done that to be funny? And then he, he was looking around. The room completely turned. And obviously mid-noughties, this wasn't... Yeah, yeah. You know, well, there was that still happened a, in the early 90s, didn't it? Yeah, so there was a legacy for it. And he was like, yeah, but come on, guys, don't be precious. I mean, it's... a you know, just, I'm not, he's like, I'm not, I'm, he sort of tried to develop it. He's going, just, I'm just talking about a little bit of light mortifier. And I was going, dude, dude. And and from seeing a guy do a 20 minute set, get to yeah. 18 minutes with the probability of a, of a standing ovation, get booed off. Oh, I won't lie, mate. It made me happy. Is that a thing though in comedy where it is a bit competitive and if someone does bomb, mm. you've got to sort of, you're kind of thinking, oh, that won't happen to me. Or because it's like in, if you play golf, yeah, you actually kind of want the other person to do a good shot, don't you? Yes, yeah. well, I think you win both ways. I think you win both ways, is the truth. Is that so? There's obviously a degree, it's the same at both ends. There's a degree of somebody storming it, which could make it difficult for you afterwards. Yeah. But if they're having a good gig, you can enjoy that. And there's also, if they're dying, like you can sort of go be intrigued by it. Some, some deaths can be artful in their own way. 
But there's also a degree of the death which could then make your life difficult if you're going on afterwards. It's not like you really want them to fail, but you'll also recognise that 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 a gig going that badly is such a rare event that in it sort of represents a moment of beauty in some ways. Yeah. I remember once, right, there was this guy, I was doing a gig in Litchfield and he um he was dying it was his second ever gig and he was dying so so badly and then at one point he said something else that didn't get a laugh and then he went, uh, laughter's optional. And um, he got a laugh, right, for that just sort of ironic throwaway. And then he just kept going, laughter's optional, laughter's optional. And it was like, you, you can't just keep saying it. So yeah. then he decided to go into the crowd, and I'm going to say something quite, trigger warning, going to say something quite uh, visceral now. And he spoke to a woman. He said, all right, now I'll, I'll speak to the audience. What do you do for a living? This woman said, I'm a, mid, I'm a midwife. He went, ugh, that's disgusting. <laughs> he said, he goes, well, fucking hell, you're coming on with bits of woman on you. I went, oh, dude. It was uh, uh, just, I mean, and then people were like laughing because this guy, yeah. everywhere he turned, he was just turning into a, into a punch. He sounds like um, that bloke off the fast show, Colin, the one wearing flowery shirts, sort of just goes over the top in everything he says to get a laugh and it never works. Evil version, I would say. Evil, Colin. Uh, um, so thank you and a fuck you. Have you just got a fuck you or a thank I you? I have got a very big fuck you. Mm. I don't know if you've ever performed there, but the Stand Comedy venue in Yes, Edinburgh. I was wanting I'm to a, talk about this. The Stand is a, I think it's a chain of comedy clubs, isn't it? It's and, got venues in uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow and Newcastle. Right. And I think it's it was formed and is owned by the SMP MP, Tommy Shepherd. And given what has happened there, that's an interesting angle to it as well. But um, well, should they... we just should we just re re recap? Is the because I think what happened was they, they got they had this event for the Edinburgh Fringe, which yeah. of which Joanna Cherry was due to be a speaker. I think the sequence of shows was called "In Conversation with." Yeah. Now it's mostly said that a rip the, off of my show. <laughs> well, this is partly why you're an interesting person to speak to this week, because there's certainly a Venn diagram. Let's put it that way. Um, and they so the stand it appears did did. One way or another, did want Joanna Cherry to speak there. Joanna Cherry is what would be called gender critical. I always still think that's a weird phrase, uh, but she certainly has views which are are strident, but not uncommon. I would say. And then um, they sort of made it aware, aware that there was an issue with staff not refusing to staff the event. And then it, they've released a statement in the last couple of days, which has said that because none of their staff, venue organisers, there's such a, a rebellion among their staff over the event that they now can't put it on. I mean, it's outrageous, isn't it? And what, what gets me is that the, the, the people who think that the stand have done the right thing would describe themselves as liberals. A Liberal Democrat friend of mine is absolutely adamant that they would do the right thing because she's intolerant of trans people, which she isn't at all. Um, she She's never actually said anything against trans people. She just believes that as a feminist, she should defend women's rights and... I mean, I don't think that's a beyond the pale opinion to have, um, but it, amongst the self-ID crowd, it is. And these people, I would call sort of, they're, they're gender fascists. They they will not tolerate any dissent from the received view is that, that self-ID self is something that everybody should be able to do whenever they like without any restrictions. Well, it's a matter of debate. I completely understand that. Um, but to to be no platformed in this way, I just think is outrageous, particularly when it's an organisation owned by one of your SMP colleagues. 
And mm-hmm. the shit that Joanna Cherry has had to put up with over the last few years, um, death threats, horrible, horrible stuff on Twitter, mm. it, it, it is outrageous. And, um, and there's part of me that thinks, okay, well, I've got a few slots free. Should I invite her to, to take part yes. in my show? Which Hard yes. I am... But I think I might go one better and invite her and J.K. Rowling because she lives in Edinburgh to be to be on the, in the same event just just to rub it in. But I, I mean, I, I think the I I think it's interesting with the venue because reading between the lines, it did seem that they they wanted to to put it on, but ultimately they've come down on the side of their. They've said that they literally can't do the event because they, the staff wouldn't be there to run it. Now, in terms of Joanna Cherry, I've see I listen. I'd recommend her interview of. Matt Ford, if you want to get a sense of where she's coming yep. from and what she's been through. Uh, there's also a clip, if you haven't got that much time, a four-minute clip of her on Times Radio. Now, if she said something that I'm not aware of that is overtly transphobic, which then she email me. She which, but, but email me what most people think UK at gmail.com. But I just haven't seen the evidence of what she's being accused of. And, and so what often happens in these debates is that the people on one side need a bogeyman. Right, and so how much information people are actually accessing, or it's secondhand, or she's just been set up like this. Now, among the staff there, I would imagine, like most of these manoeuvres, probably there's a few people that are very motivated, and there's probably a lot of people that have gone along with it for a quiet life. Because often young people think if there's an, a potential accusation of transphobia, the quiet life option is to is to just accede to it and be part of it. I would imagine not all of the staff that are refusing are as exercised as perhaps. Uh, a, a smaller number but I genuinely think and this is an open question if there's any comedy journalists who listen to this open questions to the stand and any Edinburgh venues if you are now setting a precedent and it happened with Jerry Sadovich whereby staff can effectively remove uh, performers and speakers that that they don't agree with the content of what they're saying what do you what's your plan this summer when the festival happens and then that starts to happen more and more because I so people are in their rights to withdraw their labour. I'm also within my rights as a performer and a person who sells tickets and creates revenue to say, how can you reassure me? I've got, t- I've got a show at the stand in Newcastle this autumn that's nearly sold out. How are you going to let me know that if a few of your staff suddenly decide my opinions are beyond the pale? What, what's my reassurance? Because too often these debates come down to, well, we have to placate people on one side. Well, there's a whole other audience, right? Not just, and what gets me in about this is the same with the Jerry Sadovich cancellation. The, the audience, this is this is what builds live performance of any kind, is the audience are so often forgotten in this. And I, w- I, w- I would bet my bottom dollar that there was people that would have bought tickets for that event that would have disagreed with Joanna Cherry, but would have wanted to hear what she had to say. But we get these, fuck it, uh, it makes me so angry, mate. Well, it makes me really angry too. And the, the devil in me does want to invite her. But of course, um, I my show is at the same venue that cancelled Jerry Sadovitz. Mm. Now, I mean, that, I'm trying to remember the circumstances. Like, didn't he get his dick out or something? He got his dick out and he used um, racial epithets. Yeah. Um, it's such a difficult one because, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, necessarily provoke anyone and by doing it, but mm. I, I do feel so strongly about it that the devil in me does want to um, in, invite her. But am I then going to risk the same thing happening? And if the, if they did that... If they tried to cancel one of my shows because of the guests that I'd invited, I'd have to cancel the whole whole run, and then that puts mm. my promoter in the shit. Well, and this, and well, this is the thing. I won't, I won't lie. Like, I'll bet you any money at this point there are lots of left wing and progressive comedians that think that what's happened's wrong, right? And but you're what they're worried about this being the thin end of the wedge, you know? 
to what degree could this kind of thing escalate? But we all think, and it's not unreasonable about a quiet life, and yeah. we all think maybe, I hope someone else says something. I And I'll tell you why I know that comics think that, because that's what I thought yesterday. I thought, God, I hope, I hope the usual lot speak up about this, because I can't be asked to get into a round Twitter. But then I thought about it, and I thought, if I wake up still angry, I'm going to say something. And I think that, I think this way lies fucking madness. Like, like, like genuinely, well, you, I mean, this what, is what, not what, a press. The staff need have? to know. We, we know that Tories are really unpopular in Scotland. Um, yeah. I've, Penny Mordant's one of my guests, actually selling the most tickets of any of the go- ones that have gone on sale so far. Because she's um, got great hair. Exactly. And many other great <laughs> things. And and some people will no doubt object to the fact that, oh my God, he's got a Tory. Now, the fact mm. that the majority of the guests aren't um, will put pe- 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 no relevance to that. Um, I mean, I did think about inviting Nigel Farage at one point, Um but in the end, decided not to, not any particular reason. But you've got to have, a, you've got to have the right. In when you're doing a run of um, eighteen shows with with guests, you've got to have the right mix. And having done this now for for a couple of years, I kind of know what audiences want and what they don't want. And mm. I, I, so the kind of people I was inviting in the first year, a lot of them, I, I I'm not inviting now because people actually want to see politicians. They don't want to see. Mm. People from, I mean, I remember I invited Anne Diamond and Nick Owen on sort of recreating their TVAM partnership. I thought that was a, quite a good wheeze, but I oh, yeah. say it didn't trouble the, the ticket sales too much. <laughs> um, so you you live and learn. Each year you do it, you learn a bit more about the audiences. And and they, they, they want people that sort of they see on the television, but they, they, they prefer politicians rather than sort of necessarily um, people from the world of media and entertainment. I mean, that is the point about they are, and it's become a big part of the Edinburgh programme. There's a lot of ve- uh, revenue wrapped up in it. Yourself speaking to politicians, Matt Ford doing it in, in, in a different way. There's a whole, you know, Aisha was up there last year. This is now a thing that creates money for the festival. And, and that is what I think will ultimately have to be reckoned with is that, is that can you let the tail wag the dog effectively? And I do, I do feel for the stand because I, I do, my sense is that they wanted, well, no, don't they feel wanted for the event, but they, for they them. wanted the decision. event to go on. Well, but no, no what I don't it, feel yeah, for no. them in, what I don't feel for them in is how can you engage staff without them being fully understood that we program the events, you staff the events. If, if, if any venue is not making that clear to their staff ahead of the festival, but they need to fucking start doing it now because the festival should become could become yeah. a farce. Well, it really could. It, it absolutely could. And it's in enough financial trouble as it is. And it is, mm. I mean, you know as well as I do, it costs an arm and a leg to put shows on there. The, the, ticket sale, the ticket prices are going up. I mean, okay, inflation's going up, so you would expect that, I suppose. But the for punters to actually go to the fringe now, it, it costs more than a Mediterranean holiday with the cost of hotels yeah. or, or Airbnbs or whatever goes up like twenty percent every year. And there will come a point when people think, well, um, I do want to support it, hmm. but if I'm now not going to be allowed to see maybe some people that I might want to see, sod it, I'll go and go somewhere else. Yeah, no, they seem to be engaged in the uh, killing the goose that laid the golden egg, literally. Okay, let's have a bit of chat about politics and the upcoming local elections. Right, so we've got local elections coming up this week. Always, I mean, this is where political... I, I love any election night. I love staying up late. I love everything that goes with any kind of election. I would I would argue that maybe this, for the British public, if this is this podcast is what called 
what most people think. I don't think most people are that exercised. Um, I mean, what do you think about turnout? Given how a lot of people feel on the left about where the Labour Party's going and how a lot of Conservative voters feel about the last couple of years under the Tories, are we looking at a, a recent low in, in terms of turnout? Well, I'm not sure, partly because we don't know what effect this voter ID legislation is going to have, where you, yeah. you now have to show a sort of photo ID when you go to vote. Um, and if if turnout is down on 2019, people will obviously then say, oh, well, that's the reason is because people mm. couldn't vote. It may be much simpler than that. It may be for the reasons that you, you've just said, that people are switched off by politics, that it's just a plague on all of your houses. Um, I, I don't know is the honest answer to that one, which isn't very helpful in terms of a debate about well no but i'll ask you for another um, i think i asked you for this before in terms of tips you know if there's if any better men listen and betting women of course maybe they can put on bets at the bingo i don't know but <laughs> oh, i can't help it i can't help myself sometimes um so what what would be your tip in terms of firstly in terms of the two main parties are they i, I mean i don't know really it's hard to judge what represents a bad night for the tories um but do you think they can have a bad night by their own objectives? Well, again, it's difficult to tell because when these seats were last fought in 2019, and th- th- this this period in the electoral cycle is where um, the most seats are fought. So in 2019, I think it was like 8,000 seats. It's the same here. Now, the Tories lost over 1,000 seats in 2019. If you remember, it was just three mm. weeks later, Theresa May resigned. So they were really at their nadir. Labour lost seats as well, though, because, of course, Corbyn wasn't mm. popular. And the Lib Dems gained, I think, over 700. Now, I would expect the Lib Dems to do quite well. I think they will make some more gains, made predominantly in the south of England, where there are Tory councils. Um, but it's quite difficult to judge what Labour and the Conservatives are going to do. And there are some councils where the Conservatives could actually win seats. Um, but there are others, like there's one in the middle of Suffolk, where the Greens have done it quite well over the last few years, taking seats off the Tories. And the Greens genuinely think that they could take control of that council. And there are other Tory councils where I know Tory councils expect to lose their seats to the Greens. So I'm not going to predict a massive breakthrough for the Greens, but they might possibly do better um, than they are expecting to do so can the tories do worse than they did in 2019 yes <laughs> this yes, is what it's can. got to isn't it it's like that's the objective come on lads put your minds to it i mean they're they're putting it about that they could lose another thousand seats well if they did that that would be cataclysmic um mm. but what you also have to remember is that whatever the results today they, they don't give any indication really as to what the result of the next election is going to be because of course Whatever the results of these elections are, they don't necessarily predict the result for the next general election. You look back at 2019, mm. where seven months after the local elections, which were disastrous for the Conservatives, they won a majority of 80 seats. So John Curtis, for it is he, um, who's probably Britain's now most respected sophologist, electoral guru, he thinks we shouldn't be looking at the number of seats won and lost. He thinks we should be looking at vote share and then comparing mm-hmm. that to uh, other years, or, and indeed comparing it to the opinion polls. Now, the opinion polls have narrowed a bit over the last few months, but not massively. Labour is still 15 to 20 points ahead generally. I doubt whether they'll be necessarily 15 to 20 points ahead in, in these elections. They might be, but he says as long as it's double figures, they're on track. 
So um, Would- I think the Tories will lose seats, but possibly it'll be in the low hundreds. I think La- if Labour don't gain seats, something's wrong somewhere. Because, as mm. I say, they, they I think they lost about 100 seats last time. And given that that was the ninth year of opposition, you would have expected Labour to do quite well. But then you have to look at where these seats are. A lot of them are in rural areas where Labour wouldn't expect to win. And indeed, in some seats, they're not even fighting them. Um, mm. The Greens are fighting now, I think, 41% of seats, which they've never fought that many before. So they will from a percentage vote share point of view, do quite well. And there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, who want to make a protest vote. Yeah. So in my, uh, where I live in Tunbridge Wells, there are six candidates in my ward, the three main candidates, uh, and then uh, the Green Party um, and the Tunbridge Wells Alliance, and there was another one, I can't remember who that was. So I thought, well, I'm not going to vote Tory because the the local council was Tory for years. It was lazy. It was corrupt. Mm. Um, so I haven't voted Tory there for donkey's years now. So I thought, well, either I vote Green or I vote for the Tunbridge Wells Alliance, this sort of this independent group that's sprung up. So in in the end, um, well, I've actually said I wouldn't say how I voted until after the elections, but I have I have voted for the Tunbridge Wells Alliance. So you have the exclusive there. Uh, the TWA. In, in, indeed so, so it sounds it, like a terrorist cell when you do it by Ian Dale uh, doesn't initials. vote Tory shock well I'll tell you something here's another, here's another headline Jeff Norcott I'm not, I will not be voting Conservative in these elections because th- there's no elections in my area but I'm making a stand <laughs> it's just very hard for me with the other parties you know, Labour and the Lib Dems, is just, just so much recent water under the bridge I mean we're not talking about things that happened a, a long time ago you know, these are things that happened yeah. in our recent political past. And and it is all a bit tribal, isn't it? I have never, ever, in any election, ever voted Labour. And mm. I'm not sure I ever could, if I'm honest. But then again, I look at the Labour front bench and I look at the Tory front bench, and I think Labour have actually got some quite interesting people on their front bench. Now, there's only a few of them, because most of them nobody's ever heard of. But I interview them all fairly regularly, and I'm quite impressed by some of them. But could I, could I actually bring myself to vote for them? Well, if Liz Truss was still Prime Minister, um, I think that's that's what possibly could have tipped me over the edge. But mm, um, yeah. my vote is up for grabs now. Well, I, th- I think that, you know, in, people sort of say about the book that I wrote, and some I've had some people, other comedians say to me, oh, aren't you a bit embarrassed about that? I'm going... That is what the Labour... All the stuff that I said the Labour Party should be doing is what they're now doing. And now they're 15 points ahead. So absolutely not. You know, I think yeah. that, that it was just about identifying what they need to be to win a majority. The, the things that I find interesting is the way, the degree to which Starmer has sort of routed the left in his own party. It started with a few things. And it seems to be now... He's, he's only sort of playing town. I mean, as we talk today, there's talk of him uh, ditching. I mean, just Starmer ditches pledge seems to be like a sort of evergreen headline now. Um, on tuition fees, which again, I don't think free tuition fees is, is the way forward. But you just start to think, is there any limit on, on the things that... I mean, I said somewhat mischief, mischievously on Twitter that he's going to come out as a Spurs fan. And you'll still get you'll still get Starmer fans going. Look, this is just what you've got to do to win elections. Yeah. He, 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 I mean, there's a problem, isn't there? He's sort of written his own attack ad in a way. The Conservatives haven't done it yet, but trust me, come the next general election, it would just be loads of clips of Keir Starmer saying one thing and then saying the other. Well, that's politics, isn't it? I mean, that 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 is part of the political game. All these attack ads that Labour are doing at the moment. I mean, we can all clutch our pearls at some of them, 
but that is politics the Tories have done it in the past very memorably back in the 1990s remember um, the demonized one um which mm. you could argue went over the top comparing Tony Blair to the devil um but many people do that still nowadays so I suppose it was maybe ahead of its time uh I think it's really difficult when you when you are leader of the opposition and you know that you've got to ditch virtually everything that went before you, although he did win the leadership by promising to continue with most of it, it has to be said. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you do leave yourself open to attack, but I'm not sure necessarily that, that those attacks are going to hit home because if you look at all the policies the Tories have ditched in one incarnation or another over the last few years, quite a few yeah. new turns there as well. Yeah, and also not you know not especially conservative in a lot of ways. If you if you just look simply in terms of entrepreneurship and and you know owning a second home and making income from that, the funny thing about the Tories is if they wanted to tout though the things that they've done from a left wing point of view, they've made it much harder to to sort of make money from owning homes and, and renting out homes you know they've reduced the amount of dividend payments that people can get exponentially so in another universe a sort of parallel universe they could they could flaunt these things you know to yeah. the red wall and there are a lot of them to flaunt you look at ir35 you look at the loan mm. charge i mean not things that are going to get many people out of bed in the morning to go and vote but for the people mm. that affect um they are, they are really really big big ticket items and um, th this is a fundamentally unconservative government in so many ways, sort of spending money like water, highest tax burden since the Second World War, mm, yeah. um, and all the things that you, you've just mentioned. So um, if you want to sort of say that they, um, they've been a bit lefty, you can. But on the other hand, the left think this is the most right-wing government there's ever been. They always think that. And just, just finally on, on the politics thing is... Um, is, you know, what is the plan for the Tories over the next year and a bit? I mean, I, I guess this is more of an insider question. Are there people at the heart of government that still think they can win, like genuinely think they can win the next election? There are, but not that many. Uh, and I, I would say that, I mean, time is running out. And whenever Rishi Sunak has a success, and he's had a few over the last few months, whenever he has a success, something like the Dominic Raab scandal happens, or Gavin Williamson, mm. or Nadim Zahawi... And that the more of those kind of events that there are, the more people think, oh, same old Tories. They, they just think, mm. well, we, we've just had enough of this. And when you've been in power for 13 years, that there is a lot of sort of hopey changey feeling in the electorate that time for a change. I was talking to someone the other day, diehard Tories said, well, I'm not going to vote Tory the next election. We need a change. And you think, well, have you actually thought through that, really? And most look, most people do not think about politics in the same way that you or I do. They, they lead normal lives. They they don't obsess about mm. the public sector borrowing requirement or whatever. Um, but it this is what I would do if I was Keir Starmer. Just hammer this message home. Just look into the camera and say, are you better off than you were yeah. 13 years ago? And very, very few people could answer yes to that. And that is how Reagan won the 1980 presidential election, using that slogan. It's not an original one. Um, and and Sunak hasn't got enough time to turn him out. You, the poll lead may well narrow, but I don't see it narrowing to zero. Um, the mm. economy is not going to recover in time. And in the end... Um, you can say all you like what you're going to do in the next four years, but people then think, yeah, but look what you've done in the last four. Just one more thing on the local elections, if I may, just to get something off my chest, because 
Um, we, we are doing a local election night show on LBC, but we're only starting at one o'clock in the morning and go through till six because so few of these lazy fucking councils mm. are counting overnight. Only a third of them yeah. are counting overnight. The rest are counting the next day. And I think that is, I think there ought to be a new law to force them to do so. Just from a, a, a democratic safety point of view, the longer a ballot box um, is in yeah. a, is in a cupboard somewhere, the more likely it is to be opened and fiddled with. But uh, let's be honest, just from uh, the romance of election night, it, the, those first results coming in from 11pm, that's the fun bit. I know. No no one wants to get up at 3pm fucking arseholes. We'll just do a quick hype here. Uh, obviously, the British bloke decoded. I'm putting in the final draft of it now. Do please pre-order that. I want to get the sales up. I want to see if I can trouble the Sunday Times bestseller list. And obviously, with the tour, there is so... I mean, the overall tour sales are now getting up towards 75%. That means there's only a quarter of the tickets left, and, and a lot of them, there aren't any tickets left. So the store, the tour doesn't start till September. Um, so get online and get tickets. If you definitely want to come, because I don't want to be hearing any complaints if they, you're the venue nearest you sells out. And even... Ian, is there anything in the, at this point you want to give a plug to? Well, um, Jackie Smith and I are doing a little tour of our For The Many podcasts. We do live shows. We were in Cardiff last week. Uh, we've done Leeds, Norwich, um, and a few other places over the past few months. We're doing them at the three-party conferences in Bournemouth, Manchester, and Liverpool in the autumn. And we're probably going to book dates in Newcastle. Won't be at the stand. Um, and uh, Belfast at some point fairly soon as well. So we're doing that. And uh, I've got a new book out in September as well. What's it called? It's called Kings and Queens, 1200 Years of the English and British Monarchy, which was a bit of a difficult one because Scotland is going to go mental because we haven't included all the Scottish kings because there are too many of them. But we go back to Alfred the Great in 886 and there's a a chapter on each of the 60-odd monarchs since then. And I've included a few ringers as well, ones that are never included in the real list, but they claimed the throne like um, King Louis or Matilda, or King Edgar yeah. II, who nobody's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's coming out in September. And and w- at what point did we stop giving them nicknames like darts players? You know, like Edward the Confessor, <laughs> so the, the great. What point did they stop having? I love the nicknames. Well, some people suggested that the late Queen should be called Elizabeth the Great, which I thought yeah. was a bit unoriginal. I mean, think of a new word that you could use for somebody. It's also a bit out of step with the times, isn't it? You know... Yeah. Elizabeth the Enduring. Elizabeth the Victorious. I like that one. Okay, so that brings us nicely, actually, into talk of the coronation. So There's the coronation a radio link there, Jeff. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. But it's coming up on a, on Saturday, is that right? Uh, King Charles III, Charles the Patient, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, Charles the Adulterer, he's, um, maybe. Charles the Adulterer, certainly to some. I mean, interestingly, I went past Buckingham Palace yesterday. We were in London with my son, and there was um, there was some typical protesters, right? I mean, I know it's become a cliche to call, you know, sort of left wing protesters like drama students, but that's exactly what they were. And they were they had this they had this banner up saying that 
It had a picture of Charles and Camilla saying, they don't care if you starve, right? And I just thought, I really wanted to go over and just say, what's your evidence that they, they don't care? You can accuse them a lot of legitimate stuff, but, you know, you're, you're making a claim here. And then I suddenly thought, this is a fun viral clip, isn't it? Right-wing comedian, <laughs> Lambust, and me just standing there. Somebody would freeze-frame it on the one bit where I looked contorted. The comedian was contorted with rage as he and, spit all flying out and, of his and mouth. And your son's pulling at your hand saying, come on, Dad, they're not worth it. <laughs> his poor son was crying he always does this um and 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 so we it does feel like there is a um, more any anti-monarchist sentiment than ever and there's two reasons for that i think is one that obviously with the queen people kind of knew that she was really well loved so they sort of laid off a bit and then we've obviously got the pressure point of the of the coronation itself and it does feel like republicans are becoming a bit like vegans is they've got to let you know very quickly that that's what they are is I'm against the monarchy. Good, good for you. Well done. Congratulations for being against the monarchy. But there's one thing that really pissed me off this week was that the BBC ran a story saying that Charles had asked everybody to pledge allegiance, right? And this obviously went like wildfire on Twitter. It's like, I'm not fucking, you know, but it gave people a jumping off point to tell you how much they hate the monarchy for the thousandth time. But the truth was, is it's not, he's not asked the uh, his subjects to pledge his allegiance. It was an invitation. And in the pledge, right, Ian, I don't know if you've read it, it literally says, to those who so wish, right? It couldn't be more fucking yeah. watered down and and and, and uh, kind of, um, what's the word? Uh, voluntary. And and I just thought, like, I, I am, just like I lent a bit towards leave, I lent towards the Tories, I lean towards the monarchy. I'm probably not going to sit in my house going, pledging to the fucking king. But equally, I don't know, how do you, how do you feel about all this? The, the Republicans are starting to piss me off, is what I'm saying. Well, I don't, I'm not sure that there is a dramatic increase in Republican sentiment. Um, I, I think well, they're that, more vocal, though, at the moment. Well, of course they? they are, but that was always going to be the case. But if you look at the polls... Um, about one in four people would ditch the monarchy for a presidency. Um, I think there will be a, a debate about it over the next few years in this country, which there hasn't really been a meaningful one for, for quite a long time. Uh, and I, mm. I don't think monarchists should shy away from that. I think if you support something, you've got to be able to argue for it uh, and and beat the arguments of your, your opposition. And... Um, the the main argument that they put forward is well it should be voted for by the people and then you think yeah but who's who do we want as president wouldn't Britain lo- oh, wouldn't yeah. Britain lose a lot if we didn't have the monarchy um, and I think that is a, a really good argument I mean you wouldn't invent it if we were started from scratch and creating a British state you wouldn't invent the monarchy now I completely get that but there is mm. there is a big lot to be said for if it ain't broke don't fix it and you can you can sort of fiddle at the edges you can make it cheaper but all the figures that people come out with about the cost of the monarchy they're absolute bollocks i was listening to Mm. a guy on the radio the other night and he was saying that this figure of 100 million for the coronation which i've always thought was completely fictitious it turns out that included in that they are putting a notional figure for the cost of hiring a royal coach well, the fucking coach is already there. It hasn't got to be paid for. All the soldiers that will be lining the route, they're already employed, so there is no cost mm. to them. You you go right down the list, and eventually you come to, come to about seven to ten million pounds. Well, I think that is, given the number of people that will be watching this event all over the world, given the amount of extra mm. tourism it'll provoke, yep. I have yep. absolutely no problem if it costs the British taxpayer seven to ten million pounds. Oh, yeah, but Ian, you, you, could, you could spend that on food banks. Yeah, you could. I mean, in the end, 
that the the old hackneyed old phrase to govern is to choose well governments in the end stamp they make choices about what they're going to spend money on and then every four or five years we get to tell them whether we think they've got it right well if you don't think you've got it right vote for somebody else well that's the point isn't it it's the same as like um, when people say you know oh, the prime minister could, you know why has he got a car the prime minister should be getting the tube and you yeah. just go realistically the, the the way that this state operates and the image that we project involves sometimes having events like this you know and it is it's hard to justify the cost of living crisis but also people shouldn't be lying about it i mean it's so suspicious isn't it the moment it says a hundred million i'm immediately going all right let's get the calculators out because that is just that's just so somebody that wants to round it up uh to a round figure i mean one thing that i do think i saw somebody tweeting that that um that it should be subscription based right uh, which is a funny idea in the age of Netflix and Amazon. I honestly think if you went subscription-based, the royal family would be more wealthy than ever before because it's, they don't just have a domestic audience, they have a global audience. And for everybody, so what is it, £1.56 a year we all pay for our tax, right? Which is is not, you know, the fact that it's mandatory, I get that some people are frustrated by that, but it's it's not a lot of money. The, the amount of people that would want to pay them a tenner, 20 quid a year. I mean, you think the fucking Patreon for the royal family would be <laughs> just massive. You could have like, and you know, like you offer things up the Patreon scale. You could go like 50 grand. You get to name one of like Zara Tyndall's kids. You know what I mean? You could go, you could just offer some incredible things. And then I think in a way it'd be better for the monarchy because they'd be off the grid then. They'd go, right, we know we, we now have to do what we... We don't have, we could fucking, you know, we could, we don't have to fill in forms now. We we can just do essentially what we like. I think it's naive to think that that there wouldn't be a lot of people who'd, who'd want to actually pay more for the monarchy than they do now. And yes, I am a boot licker in case anybody wants to fucking start. See, you, you are a loss to the political world because you've then, you've come up with a really innovative idea there, which you just don't get in politics nowadays because everything is just a rehash of something that happened 10 or 20 years ago. So um, you're an original thinker, Jeff Norcott. The blue sky thinking. Get them on the Patreon, you know, and they could do they could do shout outs as well. They could <laughs> they could do when they you know when they go out on the balcony, they could be doing their thing. They go, oh, I just want to say Barry, this is fiftieth, and uh, his wife paid for this, so happy fiftieth, Barry. It'd be a bit debasing. I think it'd be quite good if Charles and Camilla did what you do and sort of attributed sort of pastimes to all of their new patrons. I think that'd be very subjects. Yeah. yeah, if you want to become a subject, entry level subject, three pound a month, you know, five pound a month, then you go up to the board member level, twenty twenty pounds 20 a month. Million. They'll actually answer <laughs> twenty million pounds a month. They'll actually answer your fucking emails. <laughs> I mean, I just look. I, was, I I do. You know what you've said there did make me think again. One thing that occurred to me was that I one of the reasons I thought it was right to have a, a referendum about leaving the EU was because if you have a situation for a long, long time, the public should sometimes get a chance to decide how they feel about it. So. I am probably, yeah, I probably think maybe at some point we do need to address this question and it partly comes from resolving it, doesn't it? You know, I I would be happy to go into a referendum on whether or not we keep a monarchy because I think a lot of people, again, who live in echo chambers might be surprised by how clear cut the outcome would be. Yeah, and it would be clear cut and that's why they wouldn't actually want a referendum on it. (laughs) Um, If there was a referendum now, I doubt whether it the Republican movement would get more than 25 or 30 percent um, mm. because, I mean, what, what are we going to have? President Lumley. I mean, I, 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 if we had a president, <laughs> I'd happily have President Lumley or who it's actually quite difficult to think of people that you would actually want to be in that role. 
Um, President Branson, President Sugar. Oh, I thought you'd say President Brandreth there. I thought that, that would be a good one. Yeah, I would be very erudite. Yeah, I, every time I think it through, and just the simple fact, I mean, you know, politics is often about the choice is the least worst of two options, right? So even if you base it on that, every time I think it through and it comes to the idea of President Tony Blair, no, I would rather have the silly fucking hats and the coaches and all, all the, some of the, you know, the antiquated elements of it that I sometimes get are a bit weird. I'd rather any of that than Tony Blair becoming president, I've got to say. So if, if you look at countries that do have presidents that are ceremonial presidents rather than actual, yeah. like, I mean, Macron obviously combines the state job and the ceremonial yeah. side. But you look at the German president, how many people can actually even name the German president? And Germany is one of the big main countries in the world. Mm. Um, I mean, Ireland is an interesting one because uh, their president is ceremonial. And they have actually had one or two over the years, like we all remember Mary Robinson, who was a sort of somewhat saintly mm-hmm. figure. Well, she's still alive. Um, somewhat saintly figure. Mary McAleese, uh, Michael D. Higgins uh, at, at the moment. They 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 often come not from the world of politics, but from the sort of arts uh, lobby. Um, I mean, I, I just don't know. I think there is, you could easily have a, a president in this country where you're, you're actually having a choice between I don't know, um, Timmy Mallet and Dermot O'Leary or something. I, I can imagine that happening. Oh. Well, you, you you wouldn't Mallet. Yeah. <laughs> Every can time, you imagine. Yeah, you Word see, association that's, that's where <laughs> that's where I mean the British public, being what they are, might well think, "Oh, that's a bit of a joke. Let's let's vote for them." Um, oh, he mucked both face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. So, I don't know. I I think it would be. I don't think our country would be seen as the same as it traditionally has been by the outside world. Okay, right, just to finish, if you've got a couple of minutes more, just a a, a letter here. So I've got a letter, uh, and I'm not picking this just because of the first sentence, but it says, Jeff, just ordered the audio book of British Basic Bloke. You can pre-order the audio book. Please do that. Uh, also, you need to make more appearances. Oh, this just sounds like I'm kissing my own ass, but thank you for what you said, Carl. Um, but he's got a dilemma for me. General election and your vote is the decider, Jeff. Okay. Do you vote Lib Dem and Wimbledon go, can go first in the league with three points clear with one match to go? Or vote Tory and Wimbledon go into administration. I think you've probably made that a bit too easy for me. Well, administration isn't necessarily going out of business, is it? That is... I think... Look, I've voted Lib Dem in the past. I've voted Lib Dem before the bollocks to Brexit thing. Uh, if they just... If they'd apologise for that, uh, maybe we could talk. But I, I like these sort of dilemmas. I mean, that that's a... It, there's one for you. And you mentioned your difficulty voting um, Labour. What if that's West Ham in the Champions League? You taking that deal? I'm having to think about it. Well, there you go. I think that that is your answer there, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I think we all know the answer. Because it's the only fucking way we're going to get there. Uh, Ian, thanks you so much for uh, appearing on the show. Obviously, there's if people, you know, if you're not listening to Ian on LBC, you absolutely have to be doing that. Uh, there's the book. Is that available for pre-order now? Is it's that... certain. Actually, I say it certainly is. I think it is. Yeah, it must be. Uh, it's certainly okay. if it's not on Am- I think it is on Amazon. But if it, if you want signed copies, just go to politicos.co.uk. Can I just apologise for uh, you may be, you may have been hearing a big bumblebee over the past hour. It's come through the door and it's a fucking huge thing and it's making a lot of noise. So I hope that hasn't spoiled anyone's enjoyment. 
Well, you, whether you do, don't kill it, because you no. Green Party are big in your area. Exactly. You know how militant those yeah. fuckers are. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Ian Dale, thanks very much for appearing on What Most People Think, and I'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>